Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Phil, if you haven't met me. Uh, I guess you still haven't met me. Uh, unfortunately, due to COVID, I am stuck at home, so you've just got uh, a bit of a pre-recorded version of me today. Uh, and I must apologize for my 1990s era webcam, but such is life. Uh, today, we're continuing on our series uh, of Jesus on the Road. Uh, and I guess the whole point of this series was to reflect on who Jesus is as someone whose ministry wasn't limited to temples and ancient equivalents of the pulpit, uh, but a ministry that was kind of of the everyday, a ministry for people uh, that met people in their lives. Uh, this is our fourth week, uh, so we've had three so far. Uh, first we heard from Josh as he spoke on Jesus' miraculous healing uh, of a woman bleeding and a child who had died. Healings that were fundamentally temporary but pointed towards a different healing to come, uh, one that would ultimately overcome death. Uh, and then Brad took us through some of Jesus' words about discipleship with instructions that initially to our 21st century years sounded pretty harsh, uh, but by understanding some of the customs of the time, we could see how Jesus was really subverting some cultural expectations here to demonstrate to those listening how all-encompassing the call for discipleship is and how hard that can really be. And then last week, Melinda spoke on Jesus healing the blind man, and she really challenged us to consider what a restoration of sight looks like, not just for him, but for us. Uh, not just physical sight, but also spiritual understanding. And so we come to this week, uh, the last week in our series. We've seen Jesus restore life, discipleship, and sight. What's left for him to restore? So for this, we're going to look to Luke chapter 24. But before that, I'm just going to pray quite quickly. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your son. Uh, and we thank you for the gift of your spirit uh, who grants us understanding. Pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. So first up, a little bit of context. Uh, last we saw of Jesus in Luke 18, he was with his disciples uh, on the road to Jerusalem. Now in Luke 24, more than a little bit has happened. Uh, Jesus was tried found guilty uh, and crucified uh, and then after three days uh, returned from the dead the women of the some women from the group of disciples had gone to the tomb found it empty and, and encountered uh, a resurrected Jesus and then Peter hearing about this story had run to the tomb but found it empty so this is where our story picks up most of the disciples uh, are aware or have heard the story of the women uh, but there's generally a, a sense uh, that people aren't sure whether Jesus has returned. So our reading is from Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. 
They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels, who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So when he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, where they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Anyone who knows me uh, knows I like a good movie. I like lots of movies, any type of movie, except for Netflix Christmas movies. There's a special movie hell for those movies. But movies that I really like are movies with a twist, something that you didn't see coming. My absolute favorite twists are the ones where the twist kind of comes at the end of the movie and totally reframes all the events that came before it. Uh, Some spoilers here for movies that are all like over 15 years old, so it's probably okay. Christopher Nolan's The Prestige, you get to the end and it turns out the one guy is actually twins pretty crazy the usual suspects get to the very last scene and it turns out the guy getting interviewed is lying the whole time there is no Kaiser Soze or the most classic has got to be the sixth sense towards the end you find out that the main character has actually been dead for the whole time in a bit of a like reverse Jesus move here and what's interesting with these movies is you can go back and re-watch them and the second time you see them all those scenes have a completely different light knowing that twist. You can go back and watch and, you know, Bruce Willis is interacting with people. Or you thought he was interacting with people, but suddenly you can see, you know, knowing that he isn't actually there, that he's a ghost or whatever, you know, that there's a whole different sense to those scenes. But you can't go back once you know the twist, rewatch the movie, not knowing, you know, what's happened, not having that context. And when you do rewatch it, everything seems so obvious in that second time through. And I think sometimes uh, a lot of us, or at least I tend to do the same thing when we read the Bible. We have this perspective where we know how things end. And so maybe we struggle to empathize or understand the actions or thoughts of people, Jesus' disciples, even parts of the Old Testament. I mean, we know these people saw and heard of Jesus doing all these miraculous things, and then we get to the Passion and we think, how could they have not expected him to rise from the dead? We forget that we know the ending. We've got 2,000 years of hindsight, but we can't read it without our knowledge of what comes after. And it wasn't the case for these disciples. Their friend and their teacher had died. Not just died, but died horribly and violently in front of them in an indignifying map-like fashion. And that must have been horrifying. I don't know how many people have been present 
for someone passing away, a friend or a loved one, but there's a finality to it. They're there and then they're not, and that's not something that comes back. I think we have to understand that for these disciples, despite all that Jesus had said, they felt like the idea of him returning, coming back to life, overcoming that finality, must have just felt impossible. So our story starts with two of these believers, presumably distraught at the death of their teacher and friend, and it's the third day after his death. They're expecting big things, and this whole cause seems lost now. So they're on the road to a place called Emmaus. We aren't quite sure where that is, uh, but it's probably where the two believers lived. It's a trek of seven miles, so roughly 11 kilometers. As an estimation, if Jerusalem is the Adelaide CBD, then Emmaus would be like Glenelg. It's a two and a bit hour walk, maybe three hours in sandals. Uh, but I imagine you know them trum- trudging along at a slow pace, grief-stricken and depressed, defeated and drained of energy, hopeless. It probably took a lot longer than that. Their cause seemingly lost returning home because, I mean, what else do you do at a time like that? And the two of them are talking about what has transpired, probably trying to make sense of all the events of the past few days. And during this walk, the resurrected Jesus walks up and joins them. And we're told that they kept from recognizing them, presumably through some sort of spiritual blinding or you know, something more important than Karl Marx glasses. And Jesus walks up to them and joins them the most humanly way possible. Just ask them, what are you guys talking about? And Cleopas, in a moment, sort of rich with irony, replies, how do you like... How do you not know anything about what's happened? Where have you been? Living under a rock? Like, how can you not know all these events that have transpired with Jesus? Ironic because, honestly, Jesus was the only one who knew anything of these things. So Jesus answers, feigning ignorance, what things? And to their credit, the disciples give an answer that's not a wrong answer. They say he was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priests and the rulers hand him over to be death, they crucified him, and we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. All of these things are true, but it's not the whole truth. It's what they've seen from their perspective, but it's pretty limited in scope. It sees Jesus and frames Jesus as defined by the offense whilst he was alive, and paints him in the scope of a man, and, and just a man. And in this description, we can see that they're looking at this through the lens of defeat, of hopelessness, of what they had hoped would happen and hasn't come to pass. But Jesus responds to them with a rebuke. A bit of a bizarre way to console friends grieving your death, but that's what he goes with. He says, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what all the scriptures were concerning himself. And reading this, at least the first time reading this, part of me was like, yeah, how is that not obvious, guys? Come on, you walked with Jesus, he preached all the time. How can you not read the Old Testament, which is like full of references, super clear references of everything Jesus was and everything Jesus would do? I mean, that's how I remember it. So in prep for the sermon, I kind of went back and tried to get in the brain space of someone who didn't have the New Testament, read through the Old Testament, and see how obvious it was. i got to be honest, I kind of sympathize with those disciples. 
I mean, Jesus isn't wrong. It's, it's all there. And in retrospect, you can see it. But it's not as straightforward as sometimes we like to think it is. Sometimes we like to think it is because we know that ending. We have things like Isaiah 53.7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before his shearers, he did not open his mouth. Or Zechariah 12.10. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. And yeah, with the sense of perspective of what comes after, we can see how these point to Jesus. But at the same time, these verses are surrounded by others talking about God coming in glory and power. Without the benefit of knowing the truth, the twist in the story, the ending, and having someone show you how it all fits together, in some ways it's not really that self-evident. I think if I didn't know that ending to the story, there's no way that I could have you know, been able to piss all of that together just from the Old Testament wouldn't have been able to explain what would happen with Jesus or what he would achieve. It takes someone explaining something, in this, case, in this case a divine explanation, to really see and understand the scope of who Jesus was and, and what he achieved. Anyway, back to our story. Eventually, the group of three uh, reach Emmaus, and the disciples invite Jesus in to stay with them. Even in their grieving state, they still remain hospitable and want to care for this stranger that they've met on the road. It's not until Jesus symbolically reminds them of who he is and what he's come to do when he breaks the bread, just like he did at the Last Supper, that they finally see who he is, that that veil of spiritual blindness is lifted from them. And almost immediately, you can see their hope is returned. And I imagine the words and explanations he spoke to them on the road now carry a completely different authority and weight. Their grief is turned to joy and their hope is returned with a vengeance, so much that they got up and at once returned to Jerusalem. They've just walked three plus hours in the sun back home, but they're so fired up, they're immediately going to head back all the way along that route back to Jerusalem. I imagine this time their pace is altogether different, not the slow trudge of those racked by grief and mired by hopelessness and loss but rather filled with joy and hope, excited to share with their fellow believers all these events that have happened. So what does this mean for us? How does this change what we think about how we perceive Jesus? I think this story and the resurrection shows two very different things, both of which are very difficult to hold in our minds at the same time. And these things are the, the simultaneous scale of Jesus, of what he has done and who he is. On a micro scale, Focused in, Jesus' love was very singular. As we have seen demonstrated again and again throughout this series, Jesus' care and compassion was worked out at an individual level. He loved each person as a person. Not just some general goodwill and, and love and concern for the whole world, but he cared for each individual as an individual. When Josh spoke, we saw how he healed individuals, how he consoled grieving individuals. We also saw later on how he spoke truth and challenge to individuals into their individual situations. We saw how he brought sight and vision to an individual. Even in this story, he walks with those two believers and teaches them where they are. This is a God, this is Jesus loving people as individual people. But at the same time in this story, when he rebukes the disciples for having that narrow or having too narrow a scope, we're also reminded of how big Jesus is. 
Yes, this is the Jesus that loves individuals, but this is also the Jesus that has been spoken about in Scripture from the very beginning. This is the Jesus who is so, so much bigger than just one person. He's been something that's been worked out since the dawn of creation. Every part of, cre- every part of Scripture has pointed back to him time and time again. He is the completeness of God's plan, and that plan is to reconcile all people back to him. And I think sometimes our reaction, or at least my reaction to that scale of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do kind of intimidates me or makes him feel less personal. So I think it's, it can be difficult for me to, to understand that size and scope of Jesus, but also feel that care and compassion for me as a person. So what do we take from this? I think there's hope and confidence in our salvation. Confidence not only because we know Jesus is big enough to work out this huge task of salvation, but also because he's demonstrated his heart for us and for others. He's shown us both his power to overcome death and his heart for each individual brother and sister as individual children of God. We all feel hopelessness at times. We all have that time in our life where we're trudging along the road, feeling lost, disillusioned, like things aren't worth it. But I think the solution for us is the same as it was for those disciples. For our confidence in our salvation to be renewed. For us to be reminded of the power of Jesus over death and his character and love to do that. But unlike these disciples, this reminder doesn't come from Jesus embodied as a man, but rather through the family of believers in which the Spirit is resident. It's the responsibility of each of us to walk alongside of those around us to be Jesus, to remind one another of that scripture and what he's come to do uh, for each and every one of us. At this point, I'll hand back to Josh to finish.